لهم حديد ونار وهم من القش أضعف This is the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast, the podcast where we try to understand authoritarianism and the methods and strategies that it uses so that we can better resist. We're at the Oslo Freedom Forum this week and I'm sitting with Alex Gladstein, who is uh, one of the founding members of the Oslo Freedom Forum and the VP of Strategy. How did the OFF come to be, Alex? The Oslo Freedom Forum came to be because there really wasn't an international conference at, at a high level that was organized to focus on individual rights and freedom and democracy from a, from a sort of private or a non-governmental perspective. You, of course, have the United Nations, you have big gatherings that, that governments put together. But when it comes to events that are sort of more like a TED or a Davos or a Clinton Global Initiative, you know, we were looking at the space 10 years ago, and while these events are wonderful for different reasons, you know, they were all focused on things like economic stability, development, or even technology and design, but like kind of like the marquee conferences in the world, you know, certainly didn't focus on any more than like a peripheral sense on human rights, and certainly not on the struggle against dictatorship. In fact, at some of these conferences, they had the unfortunate reality where dictators were actually speakers. So for example, at the World Economic Forum, you often see people like Paul Kagame, or even Xi Jinping as some of the conference speakers. So we decided that we wanted to kind of flip that model on its head and establish a conference that would have that same and this was us in thinking in 2008 and 9 but the dream was eventually to have a conference that would have that same sort of production value and same sort of impact the model would be flipped where the people on the stage would be activists and disruptors who were trying to shake up and change the establishment or or the way that that things were working right now and have the influentials be in the audience and that, that was really, I think, the idea. And at the beginning, the first Oslo Freedom Forum was not meant to be a series. It was meant to be a one-off event to focus on the literature of suffering and survival of people who had experienced and lived through fascism and communism and other dictatorship in the 20th century. So, you know, we were looking at texts like the Gulag Archipelago or like Night by Elie Wiesel or really landmark texts from people who'd lived through, whether it was Mao's Gulags uh, or prisons in Turkey or concentration camps in Tibet. So we, we tried to bring together a lot of these, of course, people who were older, who had seen these things, and the goal was for them to testify about their experiences to a younger audience. And that was what the first Oslo Freedom Forum was about in 2009. Over time, people said, you should do it again. We decided to do it again and seek support to do it again. And it turned into this more eclectic festival, which, you know, keeps this focus on, on authoritarianism and on, on closed societies and on, you know, how can we, how can we help people in these countries? who don't have an Amnesty International locally, or who don't have something like an ACLU, or who don't really have a free press, or don't have an independent judiciary, you know, what are the mechanisms and processes we can do on our side to, to try and support them? And that's kind of what it's grown into today. The other thing I'll add is that it really started as a, you know, very strictly a venue for testimony that was very, very, very narrowly limited to, to let's say, human rights and the human rights community, at least in the first year. It has really, really grown and, and become totally diverse. And the average person you meet when you're at the Oslo Freedom Forum is not a human rights professional. You know, unless they're a speaker, it's like, or a former speaker, it's probably unlikely. They're probably from philanthropy or technology or media or art or business or journalism. That's the idea is that the speakers and the former speakers can have a place to come to to meet people who can help them in some way, whether it's by giving them financial support to increase their organization, skills and strategies to scale what they're doing, 
outlets in the media to give them a bigger voice, people in different fields that can that can really help. It's kind of like adding armor to these people who some of them are experts, but some of them are really heroic figures. And we want to make sure that they are kind of stronger in what they can do. And you've had some incredible successes over the last 10 years, um, some real stuff to be proud of. One of the people who you amplified eight years ago spoke again by video link this year, and that was Anwar Ibrahim, who's basically been in prison for most of the time since he spoke in 2009, 2010. And he's now succeeded in ending one-party rule in his country. And eight years ago, you guys saw his cause and helped him to amplify that. Any others who you're particularly proud of who stand out? Yeah, I mean, Anwar was an amazing case in terms of uh, he came here in 2010 to speak about confronting a half century of one party rule. And we ended up visiting him in, in Malaysia and, and getting a better sense of what was happening there. I distinctly remember visiting him in his office when he was leader of the opposition and him sort of turning the television on very loudly. And I was like, what are you doing? And he's like, they're, they're listening to us. And it was a very harsh and an interesting moment for me as someone who grew up in a free country, basically, to understand that uh, the opposition leaders in this government were literally being spied on uh, as a matter of course. You know, that was that was a shock to me. So we had Iza, his daughter, his wonderful daughter, come a few years later to give our keynote presentation, uh, I think in 2015. And we've been following Anwar very closely, trying to help his cause. Uh, the fact that he, you know, his, his movement was able to reap the rewards of, of what was essentially a a much more free and fair election than, than the Malaysians had seen in recent years, and at the same time become released from prison is extraordinary. So we look forward to hopefully working with, with Anwar Moore. Other stories of impact, there are so many. I'll give you a couple examples. There's a North Korean defector named Yoni Park who spoke here in 2014, and partly because of some of the people she met here and some of the connections she made and some of the impact she had, she ended up getting a, a book deal and, and wrote a book called in order to live, uh, which ended up becoming a huge international phenomenon published in many, many different countries where she had got to testify about what it was like to be a woman in North Korea and have to go through the hell that happens when women are tricked into escaping North Korea, but really sucked into these trafficking rings in China. And she, her book totally rips the blinders off that situation and has been a, a really a global sensation and has propelled her to in many countries, you know, pretty much stardom, where she'll get to a country and all these reporters will be waiting for her at the airport. That is something that we are thrilled to have played a small role in. Another example would be like collaborations that speakers have together. So for example, Kimberly Motley is a lawyer who, who fights for people who don't have legal rights uh, around the world. She has her private practice, but she also does some pro bono work. So for example, for women in Afghanistan. Well, Kim was kind of inspired by what she saw at the Freedom Forum, both artistically and, and creatively, and has launched a comic book series about lawyers that are superheroes. And she debuted it this year at the Freedom Forum, and I thought that was really a neat collaboration. Uh, I mean, the way that we measure our impact, because I'm, I'm someone who's kind of heading the, the fundraising uh, at, the, at the organization, and what we try to do for especially some of our institutional supporters, like, for example, the Foreign Ministry of Norway or um, some of the, the other organizations that like to see impact. To me, of course, the the main impact of this event is the in, is in the intangibles, the solidarity, the fact that we're doing something no one else is really doing when it comes to 
having a big global movement against authoritarianism very specifically. But, you know, we were charting things like number of video views, number of articles, you know, created, number of new technical collaborations, number of creative collaborations, number of new grants given to human rights workers. So these things we can like track over time and chart. And that's what I'm trying to do is make sure that our, our intangible impact is, is just as interesting and, and, and useful for someone to look at as our, as our tangible impact. Speaking of um, the absence of other conferences that do this kind of work, you mentioned a couple like the UN, um, and we know that the UN HCR is often counterproductive in this field, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, look, I want to be balanced here in some ways, but of course there are democratic governments that are on the UN Human Rights Council, but mostly they're authoritarian governments. And, you know, they use the council as a as essentially a tool for whitewashing what they're doing i mean if you look at the number of official condemnations that the body has made since i think 2006 when it was created it's staggering i mean so many dictatorships just have a zero i mean they've done something like maybe 80 or 90 official condemnations i believe last time i checked maybe it's a little more and just you know a total zero on saudi arabia for example zero on china zero on cuba and these are countries that have that either are serving on currently, I think those three are all, at least Cuba and China are current members, yeah, and, 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 and even Syria was until recently, until a few years ago. Even Russia was until a couple of years ago. So, you know, this is, this is kind of in many ways a mockery of human rights to have these governments sitting there. And it's not just the UN, though. It's, again, it's like these other, other conferences that people go to, whether it's business conferences or technology conferences or artistic conferences. I mean, they're... You know, human rights may be mentioned, but the struggle against authoritarianism, which is, of course, something that affects close to 4 billion people today, there's always the elephant in the room. So we really wanted to make a conference devoted to the study of this field and celebrating the people who are trying to rid the world of this menace, which is the basic idea of one man getting to rule over society. It's always men, of course, but getting one man to rule over society and getting to basically do whatever he wants and... and jail whoever he disagrees with i mean this is this is a sickness in the world authoritarianism in in, our, in my opinion and there's this uh, perception many of these venues that you don't want to bring it up because this is politicizing it somehow politicizing things that somehow aren't political like business like art like uh, entrepreneurship yeah or like make trying to make the world better for from example from like a climate perspective so it's funny that people think that oh well human rights uh, it's too tricky it's too sensitive but of course, they're willing to try and work on peace or security or uh, investment or climate. I mean, for some reason, those things are all fine. But uh, when it comes to human rights, it's it's off the table. And we wanted to create a place where human rights were the table, right, for the conversation. So we talk about a lot of things here, obviously. We talk about a range of issues that, that are stemming out from the struggle for human rights and freedom. I mean, a lot of our speakers are indeed actively engaged in that role, whether they're trying to bring democracy to their country or they're, they had served as political prisoners. Um, someone like an Amor Ibrahim or like a Leila Yunus from Azerbaijan is a good example. But there's a lot of people doing stuff that's just on the edges. So we had people here talking about the use of psychedelic drugs as potentially a 
an outlet for, for activists who've suffered from PTSD to be able to heal properly. We've had people here talking about blockchain technology and Bitcoin specifically as being a censorship resistant way to send money where in a world where governments, you know, control money and authoritarian governments control money. We've had people here talking about citizen journalism. We've had people here talking about, you know, art and music as a way of expressing themselves. So there's a lot of, a lot of beautiful things that you can have on top of this, this human rights table. And one more question about something I know you've specifically written about in the past, which is sustainable development goals, which are positive to the direction the world is going in the in the broad sense, but some very problematic indicators of how they're being used. Can you explain that a bit more? Yeah, I think there's two things at work here that are important to highlight. Number one, the sustainable development goals, there's 17 of them, the United Nations you know, commissioned uh, these goals and has encouraged their member states to reach these goals uh, over the next one and a half decades. Out of the 17 goals, and you can read them, each goal has a, a, a fairly sizable chunk of description. I think the word count of all 17 goals, if you look at everything, is, is more than 5,000 words. The word democracy is mentioned zero times. The word corruption is mentioned zero times. The word human rights are mentioned once in a, in a peripheral sense under one of the goals. The words civil liberties are mentioned zero times, free expression zero times. I believe privacy is either mentioned once or zero times. So this entire area, which is so critical and essential, obviously, to what I would hope most people would think are, is, is sustainable development, is just non-existent, completely non-existent. And the reason why this is important is both because the SDGs, as they're commonly known, guide the framework of other conferences in this space, which is why a lot of them end up having basically zero human rights content, but also investment, both from governments and, and from the business community. So you had a lot of organizations that would, for example, let's say you had a family office. You're a wealthy person with a family office. Maybe maybe your family office would do investment on one side of the office and then donations on the other side, grant making. Well, today, a lot of those offices are just shifting to impact investing. So they're just doing one thing, investing in industries that they think will make the world better. And that is primarily directed towards the SDGs. So if you're someone who's in human rights, you care about civil liberties or free expression, you're in an unfortunate situation where like that funding may be drying up or at least, you know, certainly directed elsewhere. So it is important to recognize the limits of SDGs, of the SDGs. So it's kind of this dual problem where on the one hand, you have authoritarian regimes which are, in, in many cases, adopting these SDGs and embracing them very enthusiastically because it's a way of generating positive coverage of yourself without actually making a real change to the, the rights of your citizens. And on the other side, you have these goals which are intended to make the world more sustainable, but they're not addressing you know, this problem dictatorship, which is at the root of so many of the ills of our world, whether that's you know, corruption accountability, whether that's sustainability in other senses. You know, there's never been a famine in modern history in a dictate, in a democracy. Let me give you a couple facts about the SDGs for your listeners that I think they might be surprised to learn about. The Assad regime, arguably the world's worst human rights offender, was involved in drafting the SDGs in 2012 and has since worked to promote them worldwide. Today, there is an open working group tasked with implementing and monitoring SDG progress. I'm going to name some of the dictatorships that sit on that quote-unquote open working group. Algeria, Belarus, China, Egypt, Kazakhstan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Thailand, Turkey, Vietnam, Zimbabwe. So make no mistake, 
you know, the future that these regimes and their supporters want is is one, you know, where where repression and looting is permitted, you know, so long as superficial development gains are made. And as long as like real issues like human rights and democracy are kind of off the table. So people need to realize that, yes, of course, if you read the SDGs, they all sound great, but they were created by authoritarians to basically figure out what issues they could that figure out what issues they could address in a civilized sense without having to give up on any of their repression. So they basically sat around and said, what can we do that'll make us look good where we won't have to sacrifice any of our power? That's what the SDGs really are, if you think about it. Big crime here, I think, in many ways, is that the way that the SDGs are tracked it's very important. So in any of those countries I just mentioned, there really isn't a free media. I mean, there's, there's some have a dying sense of a free media and some have a couple brave outlets left, but most of them, it's just a, a, a wasteland. And that's not included in SDGs, is it? No, the free press is certainly not. Like I said, free expression, not mentioned. But what I mean by this is that in these countries, when I've investigated this, I wrote an article in the New Republic about this called Why Dictators Love Development Statistics. But essentially, you know, the SDGs are tracked and monitored and accumulated, uh, the numbers, uh, by, uh, for example, like UNESCO and other bodies around the world. And they reach out to these governments, whether it's Norway or Nicaragua, and they say, what are your numbers this year in literacy, life expectancy, whatever. And then those governments give those numbers back. I've interviewed them about this, and I'll give you two examples. One would be the educational component of what was then the Millennium Development Goals and is now the SDGs. And, you know, the Cuban government basically just gives this data to a collection office of statistics in Montreal. And then, you know, I called them and I'm like, so do you do you go there? Do you double check these numbers? Nope, nope. No. So, you know, we're, we're, we're letting these people create their own reality. And another, another interesting one is there's something called the Global Competitiveness Index, I think, that the World Economic Forum creates. And it's a, it's a business survey that they give out. And I, I, I happen to focus on Bahrain. So I asked them, how does it work? And they're like, we give, we give the, the, sh- the surveys to our government partners there, essentially. It's like, you know, Bahrain, I think it's the Economic Development Board. Obviously, it's a piece of the regime. So then they do the surveys and then they hand them back. But no one goes and checks. So, I mean, yeah, look, if one year's numbers are really different from the year before, those are going to get thrown out or normalized. But all of these things had like a year zero, right, of, of data. So we're living in this world where not only are dictators in control of international conferences and SDGs and impact investing and really kind of setting the framework for how people who want to do good and who are good people are, are able to get in there and figure it out and express themselves. So not only are they in control of that agenda, but they're also feeding into that agenda numbers that we can't verify. So I think it's like a, a dual problem here. And, and I think that hopefully the Oslo Freedom Forum can address these problems by providing a separate venue where not only are the dictators not in control, their opponents and their critics and their the thorns in their side are the ones on the stage setting the agenda and, and hopefully all, also casting some light onto some of these practices and, and casting some transparency uh, onto, onto some of this corruption. So you've had speakers from almost 100 countries and territories in the past, and I recommend that our listeners go on the Oslo Freedom Forum website, which you can find the link to on in the description of this podcast, and check out the kind of work to do, listen to their talks and familiarize yourselves with these struggles as well as checking out Alex's piece on why dictators love development statistics. The link to that will also be in the description of this podcast. 
thank you so much, Alex, not only for coming on the podcast, but also providing the venue where the idea for it was originally conceived and for all of this incredible stuff to happen. Thank you so much. So that was a small taster of the Oslo Freedom Forum, and I recommend checking out their videos online. We were lucky enough to attend, and we recorded several episodes there, interviewing activists, journalists, and human rights defenders from all over the world, Latin America, Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, and the Middle East. We'll be releasing these discussions over the next few weeks as we get through editing them. Here's a preview of the next episode, a two-parter with Mega Rajagopalan, China Bureau Chief of BuzzFeed News. So Kashgar is the city in southern Xinjiang and it sits on the ancient Silk Road and it, you can think of it sort of as like the heart of Uyghur culture. And when I first visited in 2008, I remember like there, there was just like, you could see Uyghur culture around you everywhere. Like there were, you know, little street side stands selling non-bread. You know, there were little restaurants, shops, there were open markets. There was a night market where people would hang around all night and drink pomegranate juice. And there were lamb kebab vendors, like all these things. And then when I went back last year, it was just... I mean, I've traveled in North Korea. I visited Myanmar before it opened up. I've never felt that way before. Like when you walk down the street, like you just feel this kind of presence of police and that people are watching you and that like cameras are watching you. It, it was just a shock to me. I think one of the things that I really noticed was people on the street in the center of the city, they just don't talk. They sort of walk in silence. And the only like kind of ambient noise is police siren. The, the stores don't even play music, which is very rare in China. Like in China, there's a lot of kind of like music around you all the time. And like Kashgar is just really not like that. So, I mean, yeah, it's pretty spooky. Yeah, Mustafa. كتابا من كل قلب تالف ويا زمانا سياتي يمحو زمان المزيف يا مصطفى يا كتابا من كل قلب تالف ويا زمانا سياتي يمحو زمان المزيف